We're going to be starting a uh, series this summer on, um, it's really not a series, it's going to be a, it's a collection of, of uh, issues that we have found, uh, having polled you for two weeks, uh, issues that, that you are interested in having addressed, issues that maybe wouldn't ordinarily arise in a normal uh, progression of a study of the text. And... Uh, so over the last two weeks, well, we had our advisory team fill out uh, some uh, forms showing what they'd like to hear preached on. And then last week, a lot of you did. And we've got some really interesting topics. I mean, some of the things you guys want to have a Bible study on are really interesting. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to talk on all of them, but uh, some of the issues are things like um, end times. A lot of questions about end times. The rapture, you know, Armageddon, Antichrist, that kind of thing. So I gotta, you know, figure out something to talk on with that. So that might be next week. I'm not sure, but but that's one of the issues. And another issue would is uh, things like can Christians be demon possessed, or uh, women in ministry, or the authority at the home, male uh, female relationships. So th- those were some big questions. There's some really interesting ones. So it'll be an interesting ten weeks uh, that we're going to be uh, involved in. This morning, I thought we'd start off nice and light. So we're going to be talking about, and this is an issue that a number of people asked on, and it has to do with the Bible's view on, on homosexuality. Um, the main text I want to preach from is found in Genesis chapter 1. No, it's found in Genesis chapter 2. Somewhere in the Bible it said, no. Genesis chapter 2, and I'll start reading with about verse uh, um, 24. Well, verse 22. It's also found in your bulletin, I believe. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now, or in Hebrew it could be this at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, so, so she shall be called woman, For she was taken out of man. And for this reason a man will leave his father and a mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, that your word would go forth this morning, and it would say exactly what needs to be said, but even more importantly, Lord, it would be said in the way that it needs to be said. I thank you, Lord God, for dying on the cross for all people who struggle with homosexuality as much as for all people who struggle with their heterosexuality. I thank you, Lord God, for loving each one of us with an everlasting, unconditional love which knows no strings and no limits. I pray, Lord God, that whatever else comes out of this message, our need to love one another as you have loved us in the midst of our sin, that that would come out, Lord God. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? Before I get into that, I want to deal with a couple of preliminary issues. I believe that the Bible teaches very unequivocally, and church history, there's there's no exceptions to this in, in church history, in seeing that the Bible teaches that homosexuality is sin. But before I even get into that, I want to say this. I need to be cautious, and maybe many of us here need to be cautious, even as we talk about this, 
for this reason. I know how easy it is to sit on a pedestal and bark down words of condemnation to those who are involved in a particular kind of sin that you yourself don't have an issue with. I know how easy it is to use as scapegoats those who are involved in things that we're not involved with because then we can avoid dealing with the things that we are involved with. Homosexuality isn't my issue. Uh, that's never been a temptation for me. That's, that's not something I struggle with. My issues are all heterosexual. But see, then if I, can, if I can make homosexuality kind of a mega sin, make it bigger than a heterosexual sin, make it bigger than all other kinds of sins, then I can feel very righteous when I can pounce against homosexuality because it means I don't have to be honest with the fact that I've got heterosexual lust in my life. It's not very hard to look throughout church history and even look throughout the church today and find people making hobby horses out of sins as ways of feeling self-righteous. And so in an issue like this, we need to very much, since about 98-99% of the population is heterosexual in their orientation, this is the scapegoat that we could all hit on and feel good about, feel righteous about, be like the Pharisees. And... It's the kind of issue maybe then where we need to, first of all, remember what Jesus said when he said, don't be too quick to find the speck in somebody else's eye when you got a two-by-four in your own eye. I believe that the Bible teaches that homosexuality is sin, and we need to talk about that, and we can't compromise on that. I really believe that. At the same time, I also know that the Bible says that racism is sin and that gluttony is sin and that gossip is sin and that idolatry is sin and adultery is sin and fornication is sin and there's a whole lot of other things that are sin. In fact, if you were to line up in terms of frequency of, of, of mentionings in the Bible, you'd find gossip and idolatry and adultery and fornication and greed talked about a lot more than you find homosexuality talked about. Now, that doesn't in any way minimize homosexuality. But it just means we've got to be very careful to make it into a hobby horse by which we feel kind of righteous for our not being involved in it. A second thing is to say this. To, say, to go this far and to say that homosexuality is, in a biblical perspective, sin, and I'll show shortly that it is, is not in any way, shape, or form any justification for being, holding, entertaining prejudice towards them or any other class of people that are involved in sin. It doesn't justify at all treating them in a way that is beneath the dignity of a person made in the image of God and a person for whom Jesus Christ died. The most important thing we could say about homosexuality is the most important thing we could say about, about adul uh, adultery or idolatry or greed or, or gossipers or backbiters or people who are unforgiving. And that is that the most important thing is that they know that we love them and that Christ loves them. The first word out of our mouth has got to be one of acceptance, one of, of love, one of hope. Not that you condone what's going on at all. 
But what we've got to be known for is that we love other people with the very same love that Christ loved us with. And what that love was like was that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While I was yet in my sin, Christ died for me. And he didn't make me cleaning up my act the prerequisite for him loving me. Rather, his loving me is the prerequisite for me cleaning up my act. And so it is in terms of our relationships with one another and our relationships with the world. What they need to hear first and foremost, above all, unequivocally, loud and clear is that they are loved with an everlasting love by the same love that we are loved with, and we, in fact, love them with that love. And it's just so sad when sometimes, in fact, most frequently, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to me that the evangelical community is not known, in terms of our PR, for the incredible unconditional love we exercise towards those in the homosexual community. But that should be what we're known for. It should be what we're known for. These people have a radical love. Oh, they don't agree with homosexuality, but you should see the way, the way they love homosexuals. That should be the, the, the telltale sign. But instead, what we so often get is a sort of a leprosy, a plague mentality. We don't have any trouble, most Christians don't have any trouble being friends with people who they know cheat on taxes. You know, we can do that. Uh, we don't have any trouble being friends with somebody that we know maybe has got a, a gambling addiction or isn't, uh, isn't very forgiving. They hold a lot of bitterness in their life. We don't have any trouble befriending them. We don't have any trouble usually befriending people that, you know, heterosexuals that are living together. But for some reason, and this is my observation anyways, by and large, when Christians rub shoulders with gay people, it's like the first thing out of their mouth has got to be, I don't believe in that. I think that that's wrong. And there's this kind of idea that you just, it's going to wear off on you or something. And sometimes you have believers, and, and there's a lot of reasons and stereotyping behind this, but, but you know, sometimes you have, I hear believers say this, that oh, I, I, I'm working with a gay couple. And you know what? They're really nice. It's like, you think, what do you, th- what do you think they're going to be like? You know, like fangs and venom and, and you know, cruel and that, or what? You see, on this particular issue, there's, there's just a lot of stereotyping going on. And whatever else gets said, that can't be reinforced. The most important thing you say, to be said about it is that we are called to love people in the midst of their sin. And that, with the proclamation of the Word of God, is what leads people out of their sin. Unfortunately, on this issue, for whatever reason, we've been prone to go on campaigns. Maybe it's, because, maybe it's because it's such a safe issue for most of us. We like to go on, on campaigns and make it into a big political issue and go around and preach on it. For whatever reasons, we don't start campaigns very often against racism. and We don't start campaigns against materialism. We don't start campaigns against political corruptions. But we do have campaigns against homosexuality. And there's maybe a lot of reasons for that, but it ought not to be. Not if our message, the driving force of the gospel, is that they can be redeemed and changed and delivered by the love of Christ, which loves them in the midst of the sin that they're a part of. Now, there's a third preliminary thing that i got to say, and it's this. Having said all that about the need for love and the need for grace and the need for acceptance, that does not, must not, ever should compromise our being willing to take a stand on what the Bible says about it. We are not being gracious when a person in a house is on fire, and then when the house is on fire and we don't tell them about it because we don't want to offend their house or something. What a a nasty thing to say about your house. It's on fire. Let's see if it's true. It's a gracious thing. If the Bible says that homosexuality is sin, 
It is not ungracious to tell a person that. It's rather gracious to tell them that. To rather say, you know what, this isn't part of God's design. And there is a tremendous, and I mean tremendous, cultural pressure right now. Found throughout our culture, you find it in the media, you find it in, in, in the elementary school curriculums, you find it on television, a tremendous cultural pressure to normalize homosexuality, to make it just another, but slightly different, but not better or worse, variation on human beings. Some people have blonde hair, some people have brown hair, some people have blue eyes, some people have gray eyes, some people are heterosexual, and some people are gay. And it's all part of the normal way of things. And if you disagree with that, then something's wrong with you. You're narrow, you're bigoted, you're prejudiced, you're cruel. You're not politically correct. And even this sermon, then, is kind of like, ooh, cultural issue. But you see... We're called, the Bible calls us to be a different kind of a people that aren't just an extension of what our culture believes. We're called to stand up for the Word of God, and sometimes that means biting the bullet and saying things out loud that are true. And there's even, in fact, right now, a tremendous cultural pressure on the church to, for the church to change its views on this issue. There's at least four major denominations that have now gone on record, changed the historic position of the church on this issue, and have now gone on record as saying that they openly endorse homosexuality, at least some forms of homosexuality. Two of these denominations now saying that they will ordain out-of-the-closet homosexuals, and these two denominations have also withdrawn support from any seminary that takes a different stance, including Bethel Seminary. And even in evangelicalism, there has been in the last 20 years a number of books that have been written, I, I've read them, trying to defend homosexuality as a viable Christian lifestyle. And as the culture changes, what you're finding is a gradual change in the church, an atmospheric change where people are just kind of assuming that, you know what, it's just okay. What's at issue here, ladies and gentlemen, is this. We've seen last week and the week before that what's all important is for us to understand what is the old self and what is the new self. What is it that we need to be growing out of and what is it that we need to be growing into? If we don't get clear on that, then we're just going to be ships tossed to and fro by every kind of wind of doctrine, every kind of wind of, of cultural pressure, never really growing in, in our obedience and our discipleship with the Lord. We've got to know what is the old, and we've got to know what is the new. And the purpose and the thrust behind the Bible's teaching on, on homosexuality, as well as all other forms of sex outside of marriage, as we'll see in a, in a second, the thrust of it is to be saying this. This is stuff that the Christians should be moving out of, struggling with, resisting. I have got no problem, and as a church, I pray we don't have any problem with anybody who's struggling, who's struggling with homosexuality. It's, it's an issue in their mind, it's an issue in their brain, it's an issue in their life, and they, and, and they, they struggle to break free of that. I pray we don't have trouble with that, but rather we come next to those people and we pray with them and we talk with them and we give them permission to be out loud with their struggles or any other kind of sin. But the thrust of teaching this from Scripture is to say that this is what we should be struggling with. Struggle with it. And the church, I believe, should have as much issue with somebody condoning this as a stopping point, condoning homosexuality as a final, okay lifestyle. We should have as much trouble accepting that as we should have accepting adultery as an okay lifestyle. Would you ordain a person who says, yes, I'm an adulterer, and, you know, that's just who I am? 
If a person's struggling with it, it's one thing. But if a person's living in it and okay with it, it's a different thing. And that's the thrust of what the Scripture says here. Now, what does the Bible say about this? I'm going to go through four or five passages here, okay? We first saw Genesis chapter, chapter 2. Pause. Welcome summer. It is hot up here. I like it. I, I, I mean, I, I like to sweat. I feel like I'm really preaching when I'm sweating, so I like it. Except that I, I always get like my sweat on my notes and I'm on the Bible, and it gets all wrinkly. But other than that, I like it. So I, I'll be okay with me sweating up here. I, just like, you, know, you people in the front, be okay with it, all right? <laughs> Anointed sweat. Okay, the first passage, one of the most important, says this. In Genesis chapter 2, well, you find, first of all, in Genesis chapter 1 this. The Bible says that God made humanity in his image. And then it says in the next verse, as a way of explaining what this verse means, in 127, it said, male and female, God made them. And then, as a way of explaining what it means to be made in the image of God, the Bible says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. What's going on there is this. The Bible is saying that God, human beings are made in the image of God and therefore we're made male and female. The relationship, the sexual differentiation in its own way models something about God's own character. Both the male and fe- the, the, the masculine and feminine attributes manifest something of God's own character. But even the internal relationality, the internal relationship uh, of God is manifested in our relationship between the man and the woman, the male and the female, the complementariness. This is why the Bible, just as a little side note, the Bible's not at all a prudish book. It talks a lot about sex. And it goes so far as to say, even in the Song of Solomon and even in Ephesians 5, that the relationship between a man and a woman in sexual intercourse is something like the, the ecstatic relationship and the interpenetrating relationship that God wants to have with his church. Because it manifests something about the internal triune relationship that God has within himself. That's kind of heavy theological stuff, but chew on it for a second. The whole point here is this, that part of who we are, part of our image of Godness is our sexuality. And the union that we can have with one another, male and female. Now in in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord wants to drive home this point with Adam very well. This is the first human being, doesn't know a whole lot, so God's going to be real simple, going to drive home the point real good. And so he brings all the animals and he says, you know, Adam, not these. I mean, basically, Adam gets to see that for himself. He names all the animals. And the Bible says that there wasn't a corresponding, it uses this Hebrew word, there wasn't a corresponding partner found for Adam. There wasn't someone complimentary to him, someone suitable for him. And then the Bible says that God brought out of his side uh, Eve. And Adam looks at Eve and he likes what he sees. And he goes, this, at last, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Did you ever hear that song? Oh, no. But uh, in the 60s, um, he took a hundred pounds of clay and made my life worth living. He took a hundred pounds of clay with all the love he given, he's given. Well, he rolled his big sleeves up. You guys don't, I don't see anyone going, yeah. It's a totally sexist song. Totally sexist. He created a woman and lots of loving for a man. Oh, sexist song. But at least it's affirming the truth of Genesis chapter 2. That God, <clears throat> come on, Greg, <laughs> this is called backtracking. I, just, I want to get out of this one really fast. 
Forget I mentioned the song. Yeah. <laughs> they like that, huh? Uh, back masking. This, at last, is something that corresponds. There's a fittingness. There's a complementarity. And that we find from Genesis 1 is what manifests the image of God. And so then the Bible says, for this reason, because of this complementarity, because of this one fleshness, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and the man and the woman shall cleave to one another, and they shall become one flesh. The point of all that is to say this. Throughout the Bible, you never find any exception to this. You never find any equivocation on this. Sex is regarded as being as one of the most beautiful, profound things that God gave human beings because it manifests, it has at least the potential to manifest a truth of the kind of joy and ecstasy that's found within God himself. It's a beautiful thing. Two human beings can become one flesh, but you find throughout the Bible that this is always unequivocally restricted to a man and a woman in the context of a monogamous marriage. Marriage is the context for that to happen with. And because this is such a beautiful thing, it can become, as much as it can become beautiful, it can become ugly when it gets used outside of the context that God intends for it. When it's used in marriage, as the Bible always says it is, it's, it's supposed to be one of the cementing things that holds a man and a woman together. When it, it functions like that, it holds society together. It's good for the individuals. It's good for the marriage. It's good for the society. But when the... When the power of sex gets diverted outside of marriage, you're splitting the atom. And the same power it would have to hold society together now explodes and it, and it has the effect of fragmenting society, tearing society apart, tearing individuals apart. And that's why the Bible from beginning to end has a lot to say against the role of sex outside of marriage, whether it's before marriage, whether it's outside of an extramarital affair, whether it's heterosexual sex outside of marriage, or whether it's homosexual sex outside of heterosexual relationships, it's destructive, God says. It will tear you apart. That whole theme shows something. It shows that we're dealing here, folks, with something that is foundational. We're not dealing with a cultural thing, a culturally relative thing. I've, I've, in a lot of the books I've read on this issue, they say, well, you know, this is homosexuality and being against homosexuality was just part of the cultural trappings of the time. You know, the Jews of that time, they didn't know anything about homosexuality, so they were kind of homophobic, so you expect that. But that's part of the culture of the Bible, not part of the Word of God itself. But you see, when we're talking about homosexuality or sex outside of marriage, we're talking about, we're talking about what's fundamental to us. We're talking about part of the way that God designed the world. We're talking about the order of creation. And we're talking about something that is, that is consistently and unequivocally and unanimous, unanimously taught throughout all of Scripture. This is no peripheral matter, folks. It has to do with our sexuality, and that's a central part of what we are. Okay, so you find throughout Scripture, all forms of sex outside of marriage unanimously condemned. Homosexuality is one of the forms of sex outside of marriage that is universally condemned. So you find, for example, in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 20, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, the Bible says this, that, homose that when a man lays with a man as he ought to lay with a woman, it is a thing detestable in God's sight. And Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13 tells us that it's punishable by death. Now that 
homosexuality wasn't the only sin that was punishable by death back in those days. All forms of sexuality outside of marriage were punishable by death. God was really trying to drive home a point about how foundational this principle is to society and to the wholeness of individuals. But homosexuality is specifically mentioned there as something that is, some translations have, an abomination to the Lord. And when you get to the New Testament, you find the same teaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Paul says this in a word. He says, For the homosexual, the person who practices homosexuality, the person who practices prostitution, the person who practices prostitution, as well as the person who's got a slanderous mouth, I love the way they put sins together like this, the slanderer, the backbiter, as well as the murderer, they shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now what Paul's getting at here is this. Paul's not talking about a person who slanders. He's talking about a person who is a slanderer. And he's not talking about a person who fell into, into homosexual sin. He's, a per, he's talking about a person who's living in that reality. A person for whom this is characteristic, for whom this is lifestyle. Because when that is lifestyle to you, when there is no repentance, when there's no attempt to change, it's reflecting an unregenerate heart. And the unregenerate heart is what keeps you out of the kingdom of heaven. So Paul is saying these things are symptomatic of a heart that will not get into heaven because it's not open to the lordship of Jesus Christ. But then he says in verse 10 to the Corinthians, he says, but you were like this, weren't you? Some of you were murderers. Some of you were homosexuals. Some of you were prostitutes. But you are that no longer because now through the blood of Jesus Christ you've been redeemed, you've been saved, you've been sanctified. And what he's saying there is simply that this is the stuff, this is the kind of stuff that is old self. And therefore it's the kind of stuff that you as a new creature in Christ Jesus must be moving out of. You must be moving out of it. In Romans chapter 1, I'm going to, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. He deals with this issue once again. And I'm going to use this to answer some of the arguments that I found in the literature that tries to argue that homosexuality is a viable lifestyle for Christians. Starting in verse 24, Paul is talking about the Romans here, and he's, he says that they worship the cre creature more than the creator, and because of that, God gave up on them. They hardened themselves to the point where God gave up on them, and this is the result of it. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Note there, Paul says that it's sinful. He says that it's impure. He says that it's degrading. In verse 26, Because of this, even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. I don't know how Paul could have said it much clearer than he said it there, that this is not something that is part of God's ordained creation. Note there are several things. Paul, first of all, says that the relationship between the man and the man is unnatural. One of the things that I find frequently argued in the literature that tries to argue that homosexuality is a viable option for Christians is that, is that it says that this verse 
And all the verses that talk about homosexuality is really talking against people for whom homosexuality is not normal. It's talking about heterosexuals who choose to be homosexual in order to be kinky, and the Bible's against that. But if, if you're naturally a homosexual, then that's an okay thing, and the Bible's not addressing that. Now what I want you to see here very clearly in this passage is this. It, what is unnatural, according to Paul in this passage, is the relationship. There's a natural complementarity, Genesis 2 says. A natural relationship between a man and a woman. Paul's getting at that on the basis of Genesis 2. And when, we, when sexuality is used for any other purpose in any other way, it is, according to Paul, unnatural. It is sinful and it is shameful. That's what Paul says. The other thing is, is this. If, if Paul was saying that if sin comes natural to you, then it's okay, it would be pretty hard to argue against any kind of sin. Um, the problem with sin is that it does feel so natural, doesn't it? Take any, and I mean any, healthy, heterosexual couple one week before their wedding. I'm going to look carefully at people's eyes here. <laughs> no, I don't get it. And the problem is this. They love each other so much, and it just feels so natural. It feels so right. And biologically it is, and, and emotionally it is. But legally it's not, and therefore in the Word of God it's not. But it feels so right feels so right, it can't be wrong. I mean, isn't that the thinking of the age? It just feels so natural. And that's exactly the problem, which is why we need the Word of God to come over our feelings. Adultery, the, you know, for a lot of people, monogamy just does not come natural. I'm talking about heterosexuals here. It, it doesn't come natural. They've got more sex drive than naturally seems to fit a monogamous relationship, but they've got to fight that. They've got to war against it. And adultery comes natural to them. It just sort of happens. They don't plan on it. just is sort of there. But that's the problem with sin, and so it is with this. The fact that it feels natural is part of It's a symptom of the fact that we're fallen creatures, and we'll never grow out of it and never change until we put the Word of God over our feelings. But what's unnatural here is the relationship, not the feeling. The second thing is this, that Paul says, sometimes it's, it's, it's argued in, in this literature, they say, well, what Paul was against was, Paul was against perverted homosexuality. He was against having sex uh, between men and boys that was common in the, in the ancient world. But he wasn't against monogamous, loving, caring homosexual relationships. And I just want you to note in that verse something very carefully. Paul never qualifies what he says, and the Bible never qualifies what it, what, it, what it says. It never does mention homosexuality in a positive light. Here he says men with men and women with women. That is degrading. He doesn't say men with boys or women with girls. It's men with men. And he uses the same term for homosexuality as was used in the Greek translation of Leviticus 18.20. Arsenokoitai means a man laying with a man. They had another word for a man having sex with a boy, padiastreo. But Paul never uses that because that's not what he's talking about. The Bible is as straightforward and clear as it could be if we hear it with an open mind and an open ear and let it confront our own lifestyle. It says homosexuality is wrong. But there's three things I want to say in conclusion to this. The first is that while it's wrong, okay, the Bible's clear about that. The second thing is that what the Bible's talking about, and this is important, is the behavior of homosexuality. The Bible never says that being tempted with homosexuality is wrong. 
In fact, the Bible doesn't regard temptation to be a sin. Jesus was tempted, the Bible says, but he didn't sin. And here's why I say that. And this is very important. Hang with me on this, folks. I've known a good number of gay people in my life and in my ministry. Very good people. And all of them have told me, and this is what I read, that they didn't choose this. It chose them. And some think that they were born that way. Others think that it was the way that they were raised and there's father issues and mother issues or whatnot. But in any case, they tell me that by the time they turned 12 or 13, they started having sexual fantasies of people with the same sex and it never did, they never did have it with people from the opposite sex. And it may surprise some people here, but I'm going to say this. I believe them. I don't have any reason to doubt them. I think they're telling the truth. And I don't know if it's, if it's a genetic thing or I don't know if it's something that you're raised with. But there's two, thi- there's two things that we've got to know here in relationship to that. Number one, because you're born a certain way doesn't mean that you have to act on it. And because you're born a certain way doesn't mean that that way is okay. In fact, in this fallen world, in this fallen world, all of us, to some degree, are in some ways born mixed up. Or if we're not born mixed up, we get raised mixed up. It's impossible in a world that's in this kind of warfare to get through your early childhood clean without some kind of wounds. And some are very some severe and some, some are relatively minor, but we're all wounded in some ways. I mean, there's good evidence, for example, that people who, that, that people who commit violent crimes are born with a propensity towards that. For, do you know that 88% of all violent crimes are committed by males? By males. Now, there's got to be a reason for that. It, it probably has something to do with our testosterone. But you'd never say that because we have a, a propensity towards that, that we should like, get off the hook or that, that they should lessen our, cri- our, our sentence when we commit the crime. Violence is wrong. And the fact that you have got a tendency towards it simply spells out what you're going to have to struggle with in your life. You're going to have to struggle with it. There are people who are born physically deformed. There are people who are born mentally deformed. And all of us, to some degree, are born spiritually deformed. And the way that comes out to about 1% of the population, it appears is that by the time they get to be 13 years old, they have a desire for someone of the same sex. And I don't want to condemn them for having that. So far as they genuinely have that orientation, they're victims of a fallen world. At the same time, I don't want to follow the cultural doctrine of our age that says that you can't suppress your sex drives. That's a doctrine of our age that no other age has ever believed in. Our culture says if you have an urge towards that, well, then you have got to act on it. I mean, it's cruel. It's Victorian. It's positively wretched. It's diabolical to tell someone that they can't actualize their sexuality. And that is a lie. If my wife was paralyzed in a car wreck right now and I could never have sexual relationships with her again, I believe the Lord would expect me to live my life celibate. I also think that that would really be hard but I know in the power of God I could do it. And, we, and you'd feel sorry for me and my wife. You'd feel sorry for me, I hope. It's like, oh, man, you know, and you'd understood if, if I was a little more tense than I used to be or something. You, you know, <laughs> and maybe you'd have to walk with me and, and, and you know, help me out and stuff. But, you, but that wouldn't compromise what the Word of God says about marriage and vows and being and faithful to your partner. You understand what I'm saying? The world might say, ah, you know, it's understandable. Go out and party down. 
But the Word of God calls us to a higher calling. And so it is with some people. So I, I, I know some people who are actually freed from their homosexual orientation. I know other people, though, who become Christian, and they just, they just have to struggle with it. But in the power of God, they're able to do that. And what the church is called to do is this. We're called to walk with people who have that struggle. And insofar as they have that struggle, do not bring condemnation, but to help them walk right before God and pray for healing to come about in their life. And that leads to the third thing I want to say, and it's this, and it goes back to what I opened up saying, is this. The main thing that they, that homosexuals need to hear, and it's the same thing that adulterers need to hear, and it's the same thing that racists need to hear, and that is this, that and it's almost a cliche now, but it's the truth in it. We love them, though we come against this sin. As much as we stand against homosexuality, we are for homosexuals. And as much as we stand against adultery, we're for adulterers. And as much as we are against racism, we love racists. And as much as we are against gluttons, we are gluttony, we're, we're, we're for, for gluttons. Because it's the love of God, the unconditional love of God that precedes all sin, that precedes all change, that precedes even repentance. It's the love of God that comes to us as we are, that gives us the fuel to change who we are. And so as we reach out to those in this community and those outside that have this particular issue, the last thing they need to hear is that the first word out of our mouth is we disagree, whatever. They need to hear our love and our acceptance and our caring. Whether we're talking about homosexuality or any particular sin, this is no different. And then maybe to hear the testimony of us. That you know what? Your issue maybe is homosexual sin, my issue is heterosexual sin. They both put Christ on the cross. We're in the same boat. The Lord freed me. The Lord can free you. That's what it's all about. Father, I pray especially right now for those in this congregation who struggle with homosexuality. And I believe that they are here. Uh, uh, and Father, I pray for them that they would know that you love them with an everlasting love, that your blood cleanses them from all sin, and that you can set them free, Lord. I pray, Lord God, that even this morning they would not leave here without feeling some of that change and that love and that power in their life. And God, for others of us, for, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for where we have been prejudiced and made lepers out of homosexuals and gone on campaigns to single them out and found many specks in other people's eye when there were two-by-fours in our own eye. We ask for your forgiveness, and Lord, we pray that you'd help us change, that we could tear down walls and embrace those in our own church, maybe in our own small groups, maybe in our own families, Lord, that have this affliction. Give us your love for them. In your name we pray. Amen.